and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On this week's podcast, I'm speaking to a very special guest, Professor Dame Claire Gerarda, President of the Royal College of GPs. During our conversation, Dame Claire talks about how she came to set up NHS Practitioner Health, which is the NHS service that looks after doctors and other staff experiencing mental ill health, and what she thinks could be done to better support doctors' well-being going forwards. She also talks about her career and what it was like being a trailblazing female leader in the NHS when she became chair of the college, including the scrutiny she was under under social media. I very much enjoyed talking to Dame Claire and it was a fascinating conversation, so I really hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Dame Professor Claire Gerarda, someone who probably needs no introduction to most of our listeners, but I'll do a brief one anyway. Dame Claire is currently president of the Royal College of GPs, a role she began last year after being voted into the post by the college's membership. She served as the college's chair from 2010 to 2013, when she became only the second woman to hold that post and the first for over 50 years. Alongside her high-profile roles in the college, Dame Claire has been at the forefront of championing better mental health care for doctors and, in fact, for all healthcare professionals for much of her career. She's currently Medical Director of NHS Practitioner Health, the NHS service that provides support for doctors, dentists and other healthcare professionals experiencing mental ill health, burnout and addiction. The service was actually set up by Dame Claire a number of years ago when it initially only treated doctors in London, but it's grown into the national organisation it is today. She's also chair of Doctors in Distress, a charity aimed at reducing burnout and stress in healthcare professionals, co-chair of the NHS Assembly, which brings together key stakeholders to advise the NHS England board, and since 1991 has been a partner at a GP practice in London that now runs several surgeries in the capital. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Claire. Thank you so much, Emma. You've been chair of the RCGP and you've recently started your term as president. Could you just explain for people who don't know what the difference between chair and president is and what your role now involves? Yeah, absolutely. The chair is really lead for strategy, the lead for policy, uh, chair's council. So it's, it's, it's equivalent, I suppose, to the prime minister. It's someone that, that leads the direction of travel, whereas the president is a much more ambassadorial role, supporting the membership uh, internally, uh, supporting the officers. And whilst might contribute to policy, uh, doesn't do that as a as a sole part of the post and actually on the whole is someone a little bit more like the Queen who really is much more in the background and it was done this way because it was modelled on the BMA so the BMA is the only other organisation that has a chair and a president and all the other Royal Colleges have a president uh, so it is confusing. Why did you decide to become a GP? My father was a single-handed GP he came to this country in the 1960s, he was an overseas trained graduate. He worked as a single-handed doctor for many years. And our surgery started off in our home, so it's in our front room, uh, and I used to peer down at patients. He used to take me on home visits, something that would never be allowed now. And I would actually see I'd see that the sort of the, the position he had in the community. I mean, I don't articulate that, but he was the doctor and I was the doctor's daughter and I was just so impressed by him and as the surgery then moved and it moved away nevertheless I kept an interest and the greatest uh, parts of my growing up with him on long journeys talking to me about medicine talk to, talking to me about general practice and I knew I would never be anything else. In fact, I went into psychiatry first just to test the system. But actually, what I really loved was continuity, 
looking after patients when they're well, all the things that that we know makes general practice great. So really I went in because I'd been born and bred into a general practice home and I loved what I saw. One of the things I mentioned at the start, obviously, is that you're really well known for all the work you've done around um, looking after doctors with addiction and mental health problems. You've been doing this work for a really, really, really long time. Um, How did you first become interested in that particular area of work? It's a good question. I started off way back when, when I first qualified as a GP, looking after drug addicts and the homeless. (laughs) Now, you might think, how does that then turn into practitioner health? Well, there are lots of similarities between doctors and drug addicts and the homeless. They Both groups have very poor access to healthcare and doctors have very poor access to healthcare for completely different reasons. I, because my practice is very close to St Thomas's Hospital, very close to King's College Hospital, we saw a lot of doctors at our practice and I was struck by how shaming they found even coming to ask for some very basic things like contraception, let alone if they had mental health problems or some of them had addiction problems. So it was a sort of natural segue, really. And I suppose when the the service was was advertised, it was they fully intended it to go to a mental health trust, absolutely fully intended it to be a very traditional run by hospital consultants and psychiatry. But actually what I said and persuaded the funders that If we're going to get doctors into mental health services, it has to look familiar to them. If they're walking into, say, the Maudsley Hospital, they won't walk in because they'll be scared of being spotted. But walking into Riverside Medical Centre, which is a normal GP practice, of course, because it it looks and feels like things that they're used to. And, And I put lots of other things as well about why I would be good at running it, not least as a generalist we can manage the totality of the patient. Whereas in the specialist sector, they might have a different bit for eating disorders, different bit for depression, different bit for addiction. Whereas my service runs it all in a single space. So it was a natural segue into what I was doing. And it's actually been running 15 years, Emma. It brought together all of my interests. It brought together my interest in drug misuse, mental health. It brought my, into, I used to head up the National Clinical Governance Service for Primary Care. So it brought in performance management in terms of, I don't do performance management, but understanding the impact of performance management and complaints on doctors. So it brought all that to, to into one space. And I've loved it. It's been a privilege looking after my own uh, and it's a privilege to see how well they get and how much they trust coming to see my service. And, and it's quite amazing. Wherever I go, people come up to me and say, thank you so much for the help Practitioner Health gave me. It's just amazing. How many GPs does NHS Practitioner Health see in an average month at the minute? And has that increased compared with before the pandemic? Yes, yes. I use very few stats, but I'm going to give you a stat. We saw as many doctors, all doctors, in the pandemic year, which was last year, say April to March this year, as we saw in the first 10 years of the service. So we saw 5,000 last year and 5,000 in the first 10 years. And 55% of those are GPs. So you can do the maths. It's quite an incredible number. It's out of proportion to what the number of GPs on the medical register and the numbers of GPs have increased year on year. They've increased. I mean, we see some blips uh, in proportion to the to the other doctors, but 
on the whole, GPs have been overrepresented in our service from the outset and the pandemic has made this worse. What kind of issues do you see GPs coming to and how has the has the pandemic changed those or are they the same sort of things that people were coming before with? No, it's actually different. Number one, we've seen far less addiction. And this isn't just GPs, uh, it's all doctors. And whether that's because it's easier to hide it if you're working remotely or whether there has been a real drop, I don't know, but we've seen far less. But what we've seen more of is anxiety. Now, we always saw anxiety and depression, but 80% of the doctors coming to see us now have a diagnosis of anxiety. And what I mean from that is, is almost sometimes existential psychotic anxiety that they feel they are responsible for clearing the waiting list. Only they are responsible. They feel that, especially GPs, the pain of being criticised for patients not being able to see them and by seeing I mean metaphorically see access them and yet they're working 12 13 14 hours a day so and what they do then is they work harder they might come home and work even longer or they might give up their weekends and of course that fuels the anxiety so what we've seen is overwhelming anxiety and it is fueled of course by people's losses grief fatigue And I'm hoping that as the pandemic wanes, we'll start to see a much more levelling out of this. I mean, it's odd that we're not seeing, well, we are seeing depression, but it's anxiety that's the overwhelming symptom, which is a horrible symptom because it makes people constantly feel fearful. And depression makes people feel sad and it's like wearing blinkers. But anxiety is such an awful emotion if you're carrying it around with you all day. So in a way, hopefully that will start to reduce because uh, I don't like to see anybody suffer, but I think a lot of GPs are suffering at the moment. You touched on it there. Do you think the whole issue, obviously, they've got massive workloads, the, the negative press coverage has been appalling and it's obviously leading to quite a lot of anger among patients. Are all of those things contributing factors to this, do you think? Yeah, of course they are. But I think... What GPs need to do is to step, step back a bit. And if I'm anything, if I can be of any use to them as their president, it's actually to say, try and think why it is we're being sold out. Now, you could say it's because people uh, can't see the GP, but we've had, you know, we're seeing proportionally more patients today than we were two years ago. We've had a 50 million more consultations uh, since before the pandemic per year. So, you know, it's clearly not that, because if you start to unpick it, it's not that. So why is it? And I think it's because we are held in such esteem by patients that that actually it's not us that they're that they're criticising. It's not us that we're their proxy for their loss of certainty, for their grief, for their trauma that they've been through the last two years, and what they're doing in essence, is, is is projecting it into us as their GPs because we are the closest you can get to somebody holding your, your, your pain and your anxiety. So, of course, we can't make it better because it's it, we just can't. But so what happens is that it, they project these, these negative feelings into us and take it out on us, and the, and the media, of course, gets fueled up and, and exaggerates. So I think we should step back a bit and realise it is – 
it's not us. It just can't be because the evidence shows that we are seeing more, we are doing more, etc. It's, it's what we represent and it's the pain that our patients have been through that we haven't been able to protect them against. The NHS and, and the medical professional, I mean, you've touched on this, have, have historically been quite poor at addressing mental health issues in doctors and, and other staff as well, obviously. But you know, things are changing as they are in society as a whole as we become kind of a bit more open about mental ill health. But do you think the NHS is doing enough to support doctors who are struggling? And if not, what else should it be doing? I mean, that's such a big question. Yes and no. I think the NHS has done well during the last two years. I think it's done remarkably well in what it's put in place. But now we have to capitalise on that and we have to keep it. But what I think the NHS should do going forward, and I also run a charity because you mentioned Doctors in Distress, which is aim to reduce the rate of suicide amongst all healthcare professionals. So what I think the NHS should do is to provide every single doctor, healthcare professional, with access to an hour per month of, of paid reflective space, which a health professional can choose from a menu of options, what they want will suit them. So it could be coaching, a mentoring, a reflective practice, but it is adult-led I, you decide what the agenda is. It is free. It is funded within everybody's contract. And it's there to support every health professional right through, not just if they put their hand up and say, I'm struggling. Because at the moment, only those who put their hand up and say, I'm struggling, get help. And actually, those that most need help don't put their hand up. So if we had a so normal, just like I do basic life support training every year, it's so it's such a normal thing that every month you have, you know, you've got an hour which you can choose how you use it. It's used for appraisal and revalidation, etc. I don't mean the 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 out the content of it, but the fact that you've uh, you've used that hour or those twelve hours. So, I think if something's going to come out of the pandemic, it has to be an acknowledgement that it's not just those that are putting their hand up. That everybody needs lifelong support everybody needs a space where they can talk about the emotional impact of their work and everybody needs a space where they can give support and gain support from each other so that's what I think the NHS should do going forward because otherwise we can't capitalize on this awful pandemic we've been through I don't think anybody in the NHS who's worked through the the last sort of 18 months, two years could have come out of it unaffected. It's just been so stressful and so awful. This is why going back to why a GP has been singled out, because there is this unconscious collusion that doctors uh, wear magic white coats and we're never unwell and the patients are the ones that bring the problems and we support them. And the problem about the pandemic is that's been shattered Everybody, many people listening to this will have lost loved ones. Many people listening to this will have lost certainty. Uh, we might have had their training affected. So, and we also have to look at some of the causes of our distress that were there before the pandemic, which we know are certainly for general practice related to workload and the unrealistic expectations that, that we can make good the, the shortfalls in health and social care. Is there anything you could recommend that practices can do to help support their staff and promote well-being amongst the whole practice team? Yes, of course there are. But what we've got at the moment, if any of you sort of know a bit of psychology, I'm sure you do, Maslow's hierarchy of need. So we're at the moment, which is the top, is where you 
So right at the top of the pyramid is where you have space and time to come together and reflect with each other and have away days. But we're at the bottom where we're basically, if any of the GPs listening to this, even being able to have time to have a cup of coffee with a colleague is probably unusual. So I think rather than blame or, or put undue burden on the practice, I think here at the college, we need to start seriously thinking about how we can start to make it better for general practice in its totality. And my views change. I think what we're lacking now in general practice is a sense of cohesion and a continuity, not just continuity of patients, but continuity of our organisations. And we've become, and made worse during the pandemic, we've become a sort of disparate, peripatetic workforce. And if I was to make any plea, and even my own practice I'm making, you know, we're discussing it, is to bring back a system where we can bring GPs into the organisation, give them the time and space to develop, just like I developed, and not just expect them to be uh, workhorses, seeing patients and churning them out. And that's how I developed 30 years ago. And I think if we can bring that back, and I'm not actually saying we shouldn't have salary, we shouldn't have flexible work, I'm actually saying we should have that, but we should be allowing the GPs, especially the next generation of GPs, to flourish within a safe organisation and so where they're not just doing front-facing clinical work but actually are able to go and look at whether they want to be trainers or academics or GP leaders and we should be allowing that in whether we call it a partnership model but actually within the organisation that is the practice and that's what I think we're lacking at the moment and I I've sort of come full circle in this I I, I just think what people want is to belong and we've pushed out belonging and we're sort of becoming a conveyor belt for treatment rather than a space where we develop and learn and, and together and actually make things better for patients during that time. The biggest problem we're facing with the GP workforce at the minute really is, I mean, there's more and more people coming in the bottom, but we're just losing loads of experienced GPs. And I was wondering if you, you've got any thoughts about what might help that. Well, I think we've got to be honest, and I've said this for years, years of people listen to what I've said, is I don't think any GP should be doing more than four or maybe five face-to-face clinical sessions at all. I think we are the only specialty where built into our contract is essentially full-time face-to-face. So number one is an acknowledgement that four, maybe five clinical sessions is about the maximum you can do to, to maintain well-being. Now, I don't think GPs are leaving. What they're doing is they're wanting to develop outside interests. And then, of course, that bit becomes more interesting, less onerous, and that starts to take precedent. Whereas if we were actually saying, look, you don't, it's a hard job. So Stop calling yourself a part-time GP or portfolio GP. You are a GP of which you are doing three or four clinical sessions, three or four leadership sessions. You're an appraiser. That's a full-time job. And start to say this. And what we're doing at the moment, though, is we only measure GP activity in terms of what they do in the consulting room. And we've got to stop that. And if I was, again, anybody listening to this, don't call yourself a portfolio career. You don't hear about a portfolio consultant 
you're not you're not a part-time GP you're a full-time GP of which you do different bits that make up that job I think going forward if we can bring people back into the space into the consulting room acknowledge you cannot do more than four sessions acknowledge that it's really difficult for the first two to three years as you get to know the patient and you develop but after that it becomes much much easier if we're all doing it together and the other bit I think we should be also saying is let's start challenging ourselves I say this and many disagree but I say this I think the days of the omnicompetent doctor is over so why that I mean is the days in 2022 of having a GP who's able to know everything about everything is over how can we there are drugs that we are being asked to prescribe that we can barely pronounce let alone prescribed yet we're taking it on and there's this fallacy that we do it under shared care no we don't that's shifted care we're taking the full responsibility when those drugs in 10 years time are found to increase the risk of schizophrenia it'll be us you're long since gone and the shared care agreement will be redundant because we've signed that prescription so gps listening to this start to think what is it that we're currently doing that we maybe shouldn't be doing when you became chair of the RCGP in 2010, you were only the second female chair for 50 years. And there weren't that many women lead in leadership roles in general practice at the time. I mean, did you feel at the time that you were kind of blazing a trail? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Maureen Baker was here, so she was absolutely fabulous and she was a great inspiration to me and a great support. But there were very few women leaders in medicine. There are now. I, mean, I think every single glass ceiling has been broken other than chair of the BMA. But when I started, when I was chair, there were very few presidents who were women. And it's tough being a woman leader, or at least it was, because there were so few people around who looked like me. And and also the language, you know, you still talk about, I'm still referred to as Claire has outspoken views. You'd never say a man is outspoken. You'd say they're challenging. You know, there's still the terminology that's used, the language that describes women as being, women leaders somehow being strident and having to push our way through. And actually, it was worse when I was chair because there were so few of us. And I think, again, as more females are becoming leaders, our challenges are actually getting bigger because... What we're now seeing is that uh, we're expected to be leaders as well as in the position of leadership, as well as still continue the work that we do as carers and as homemakers. So it's actually, I think, harder now because there is this expectation. And I think women leaders now want don't want to be working 24-7. You know, so it is hard. It's how do we balance that? Whereas my generation... In order to reach the top, we had to be more male than male. Well, you often seem to come under quite a lot of scrutiny, I seem to remember, when you were chair and a criticism. Always. I I was on the Andrew Marr show one day and I had a broken leg. So I had my plaster of Paris or whatever it is, you know, fibreglass cast from the knee below. And I couldn't cross my legs. And I was sitting on this quite low sofa and somebody had put on social media a photo of me with the camera, with they'd expanded it, zoomed in to see between my legs. Oh, my okay? God. And I was shocked. I thought, how can anybody 
do that. How dare they do that? And as a woman leader, I knew that I never wore, I never wore trousers. I never wore dull colours. I always wore makeup. And if anybody knows me, I never wear makeup. But for three years, I wore makeup because people judged me not on what I said, but on how I looked. And you either ignored it, but then the the horrible comments you'd get on social media about how you looked. Uh, so, Did you have to develop a really thick skin? I've got very, very, very supportive family. My husband, uh, I created a kitchen cabinet to support me. Judy Gilly was fabulous. She was, wasn't working at the time. People remember she was in the negotiating of GPC. I think she was the first woman to be a negotiator. But thick skin, yes and no. I mean, I suffered a bit. My mental health suffered. Uh, it was a tough time. And I remember the, the day, I mean, I had to fight the NHS Act, the bill. The day it went through the House of Lords, I got appalling flu that day. And I thought, well, that is the psyche and the soma. You know, suddenly I've become unwell held back my physical illness because I had to do continue fighting the uh, bill and now that it's over and I've sort of lost the, the, you know I've, I've developed essentially a, a, it wasn't a psychological illness but it was absolutely we know that people get ill when they're very stressed so when my father died during this period you know the, the fact that I wasn't there at his death because I was having a to be back in London to meet yet again a male politician who tore strips off me for criticising the Health and Social Care Act. And I thought, you know what, my dad's died today and I'm here talking to you. So this, it was tough, really. I mean, I don't want sympathy because that's the job you go into. But when then people start challenging you on social media, the worst was there was a, a doctor's website which used to awful stuff about me. So I challenged one of them to meet me in the college because he was posting these awful things. He did meet me. And when he came... He was just a sad person who started, you know, telling me about his personal life and how unhappy he was. I thought, well, then why have you been saying such awful things about me on social media? And yet it's not me you're trying to get at. It's, it's your mother who didn't bring you up properly. And then I took myself off that site. Uh, I've took, taken myself off Twitter. I don't use Facebook because you just don't need it. What do you say to, to younger doctors who are looking to become leaders or want to follow in your footsteps? What advice do you give them? Well, if you want to be a leader, it's hard. And uh, listen, let's backpedal a bit. I never set out to be a leader. I never, you know, I no more expected to be president of a royal college than to be the Queen of England. You don't set out at 35, 36. So this is what I'd say is work hard and don't expect anybody to notice. In other words, you're working hard for its own sake. Always say yes and sort out the consequences afterwards. Now, clearly, the yes has to be on something that sounds interesting, is legal, etc. And then make sure you've got your bases covered. So your home, your family, and your job, your, your container, which is the space that is your main place that gives you support. And then just look around get because general practice is the perfect place to develop leadership roles because my god you can do anything from medical politics to, to leading a service to to writing and if retrospectively i think how i've done it 
retrospectively, I think I have got, I mean, enough of thick skin, but I, I did learn very early on how to sort of internalize my anxiety and, and not let it spill out too much. But leadership, I mean, working is hard, but yeah, I mean, but actually anybody can do it if you just want to. It's just a matter of taking risks and finding yourself a sort of professional home so you never feel lonely in simplicity's sake. And have healthy children. If you have children, make sure they're healthy. I mean, I say that in joke, but, you know, I've been very, very lucky. I've had two healthy children, a stable relationship, and my practice is within three minutes' walk from the surgery. We talked obviously a bit there about sexism and stuff, but sexism, I mean, it's not gone away and it still really is a problem in the NHS. What do you think needs to be done to kind of address it? Emma, I think sexism is being sorted, actually. I think as more women are entering leadership roles, medicine, but I think what's not being sorted, certainly in general practice, is that we're over-reliant on doctors who've come from overseas who we don't look after and I think men and women. And this resonates with my upbringing. My father was an overseas doctor who didn't feel looked after by, the, by what he saw as the establishment. I think that what we have to do now is to find ways of supporting our overseas graduates who, I can't remember the last figures for the GMC, but some of that 55% of new registrants have trained overseas. So before we end up creating a, a sort of disenfranchised group of doctors, we have to find ways of supporting them. We have to find ways of acknowledging the skills that they have, acknowledging that they've got far greater difficulties than if you've been trained in this country. And they tend, for one reason or another, to work in the hardest areas, most clinical practice, and do most uh, out of hours. So they're also putting themselves at most at risk. So I'm, I think sexism itself, clearly there are pockets of it. I mean, uh, the BMA did an inquiry recently about sexism in, in the BMA, and I'm sure other organisations have it. But I think as more women become leaders and challenge the status quo, I think it will be ironed out. And I actually think it'll be ironed out in the next two to three years. A number of years ago, you got quite a lot of flack because of the way your practice is set up. You know, you've run a number of practices with a handful of partners and employ more salaried GPs. But obviously, more and more GP services now operate under that model. I mean, do you think it's inevitable that trend's going to continue? And, and what do you say to people who kind of criticise that way of working? Yeah. You see, we've always been, my practice has always been the subject of criticism. And it is quite amazing. <laughs> People, you know, we're still an NHS partner. I did my last out of hours on call on Boxing Day, and I'm 62. So, and that means out of hours. That was a 13-hour shift in an out-of-hours centre. All my partners still do night work uh, as routine. One, So, and till very recently, I would have done a full clinical load of normal general practice. But people often, you know, they, they, they like to see things which aren't there. And what we did, and we've never bid for a practice that has a good local provider or uh, has others that say that if, they're, uh, if there's a, a, you know, a, a group of practices that want to do it who are very good, we've never bid. So we've only ever bid for practices that have lost the GPs for whatever reason, a new bills uh, or 
are in very deprived areas and they can't recruit. So, but nobody wants to bother about understanding that, you see. They just see. And the model that we used uh, was partner heavy with salary. Now, I think in retrospect, that was an error. And I think we should have got more partners. But it was tough to recruit partners at those. So this was a decade ago. It was tough. Not as hard as it is now, but it was tough. And so we did this. And we created leadership roles. And we we grew. And we, we transformed our practices. And then we expanded into urgent care. And if you And, of course, lots of people did the same. And they found that... It's hard work. <laughs> it's not that you're opening a franchise. It's hard work running small practices. And, and, and there are only certain amounts of economies of scale you can make. So now the PCN model, if you like, is sort of that. That is practice at scale. It's the PCNs, which I think are the right direction to go to. I think PCNs are the right thing to do. And what will probably happen is that because we're across, I think, 10 or 5 PCMs, is that you'll then become aligned to your PCM much more than aligned to the practices at scale. So part of it is people don't understand what we're doing and they like to create a narrative for themselves. And I used to get, going back to criticism, Emma, I used to be told I'm not a grassroots GP. So I used to say, so what is a grassroots GP? To be fair, I've stopped doing vast amount of clinical practice now, but only just, only just. And I'm saying, what is a grassroots GP? I've been a GP for 30 years. Uh, I've been in the same practice for 30 years. I still do out of hours. I do, do. So I think we've got to make sure that we don't create narratives for others and that we come together as GPs and look after each other. What did you make of the reports about, um, you know, Health Secretary Sajid Javid, this idea that he's he's considering nationalising general practice and making GPs employees of hospitals? What did you make of that? Oh, gosh, well, well, number one, it's nonsense. You know, how can hospitals run general practice? They We have had some hospitals have run general practice, by the way, uh, I think in the north of England, but very few. They don't understand general practice. But number two, there is no money to be made. There's no economies that we can make. There's, we're doing our best. And number three, just think it through. If we were nationalised the same as hospitals, we would have to be paid and our terms and conditions would have to be the same as hospital doctors. I don't think the state can afford the goodwill. I don't mean goodwill in terms of selling goodwill. I mean goodwill in what your average partner does. Part of their partnership agreement, they just do it. They couldn't afford it. I mean, every day, every day that you're these partners now listening to this is three sessions they're doing, three. So that's three PAs. So you imagine uh, if we were being paid at the same rate and if we have the same terms and conditions, and plus who's going to do the work at the end of the day? Because we'll then say, that's it. We've done our four and a half hours. So, I mean, it's a nonsense. And what I would say is that, General practice has amended itself, it's learned, it's adapted, it's flexed, it's innovated since 1946. It's now we need to acknowledge that if we are going to do any more, the rest of the system has to adapt. Unless we have a system where the hospitals are part of the community practices, they start to de develop continuity of care inside and outside practice, we, it's easier for us to. Uh, for patients to go back into 
to the, the, the space, the secondary care space, without having to come all the way around the circle to see us, we're going to move nowhere. There's talk that there might be some kind of review of primary care coming up and general practice. What would you like that to kind of look at? Number one, I think we should return to continuity. How can we deliver continuity? But I think if you look at just general practice in isolation, it's a nonsense. You have to look at the rest of the system. My on-call on Boxing Day, not a single problem could I solve on my own. I just couldn't do it. It had to be social care, specialist care, palliative care. So... It's pointless just reviewing general practice, and it actually puts the locus of disturbance onto us. We are doing our best. And do you think the partnership model is the the, the future of general practice? Yes, I do. But I think we have to look at. You see, the problem about at the moment is we don't have the resources to deliver the care that we want to deliver. Do you think there's kind of a bright future ahead or do you think things could go the other way? I think there's a wonderful future ahead. And if I was entering now medicine, I would do general practice. I think we have opportunities now because as you because when if they do do a review of general practice, what they'll realise is we are full. It, it, we cannot do it. What we're doing work now, other than cardiothoracic surgery, we're doing work now that so one patient in your consulting room will be five different doctors in a hospital setting okay and you're doing that in 10-15 minutes so when they start looking at us they'll realize actually what we deliver and how much we deliver and so I think part of the scrutiny that we're going under at the moment is actually going to be to our benefit really a bit like looking at consultation numbers so when we've been criticized for consultations and to say we've seen 50 million more people than we did pre-pandemic. So I think once the politicians who are very clever, whatever we think about politicians, start to say, well, actually, they're doing it. So what 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 more can they do? And we'll start getting some really imaginative solutions. And actually, I think the pendulum is going back. I think there is much more emphasis now on getting offering partnerships, off, offering equity shares, offering spaces to develop and 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 learn, you know, to be together, etc. So and places like this, the Royal College of GPs where I'm sitting, I think are a force for good. And I think it is a very good time to be a GP. What are you particularly looking forward to? I mean obviously you're president now, you're kind of right quite at the start of your your term. What are you looking forward to as being president over the next couple of years? I really I'm going to meet as many of the faculty leads as I can and find out how I can support them to support their membership. I'm looking forward to our 70th anniversary, which is this year, 70th anniversary of the Royal College of GPs. So I'm looking forward to celebrating our profession and celebrating this college. I'm looking forward to Wonka, which is the uh, World Wonka, are coming to the UK. And I'm looking forward to actually meeting as many GPs as I possibly can. I'm also looking forward to having a day off a week. Uh, I've decided from April this year, I've never, ever had a day off and I'm going to have Fridays off. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to playing, to learning to play bridge, starting to go swimming. Oh, excellent. And uh, just sort of having a bit of space before the inevitable happens, which is as you get older, you become less able, et cetera, et cetera. That sounds like a really good plan. Thank you so much to Dame Claire for speaking with me this week. I'm very grateful to her for taking the time to come on the podcast. Just a quick note, if you're a GP or a healthcare professional who's experiencing issues relating to your mental health, then there is a list of resources that could help in the description for this podcast. 
Well, that's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do think about rating us. Don't forget you can catch up with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website, gponline.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at gponlinenews. I'm back next week with Nick and Luke for our regular news review. Do join me then. 